Hey, it's Jeff, and welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. So if you're hunkered down at home right now, uh, it may be a good opportunity to check out our course platform at onecommune.com, where you will find programs from Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Wim Hof, Brendan Burchard, Adrian Mishler, and many other brilliant personal development and wellness luminaries. Our courses span yoga, meditation, spiritual development, functional medicine, recovery, and social impact essentially everything you need to be holistically well. Just go to onecommune.com. And if you are one of the superheroes on the front line, a healthcare professional, supply chain worker, delivery person, scientist, government worker, you will be stressed to your limits, both psychologically and physically. And even 30 seconds of deep breathing and grounding can help you stay centered and focused. We need you and we support you. So if you are someone on the front lines and could benefit from a meditation course on your phone, in your pocket, email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. That's jeffk at onecommune.com. And I would be more than happy to set it up. Okay, my guest on today's show is Justin Michael Williams. He's an author, top-charting recording artist, and a meditation teacher. He recently released his first book, Stay Woke, a meditation guide for the rest of us. Now, I could say a lot about Justin, but I think this story basically encapsulates his character and his mission. Now, generally, when folks release a book, they do the requisite tour of Barnes & Noble's bookstores, which are usually located in the tonier parts of town. Justin eschewed this typical approach and instead organized a tour of schools, mostly in disadvantaged neighborhoods where he would hold events that introduced the concept of meditation to young people and gifted them the book. Generous, compassionate, innovative are just a few of the adjectives that describe Justin. I hope you enjoy our conversation. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and welcome to Commune. Justin Michael Williams, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I have um, in my... Uh, research on you, your behaviors and proclivities. Um, I have uh, I've heard you say that you actually enjoy spending time by yourself. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that because I don't think that that's the normal human condition for people. I think people have a very difficult time spending time with um, themselves, and of course, you know, our current situation is forcing us a lot of us to do that. Yeah, you know, I think for so many of us, and I want to be really clear here, like I used to have a really hard time spending time alone. 
you know, and I think so many of us, we get used to uh, finding our happiness and our peace and our joy from things outside of us. Um, and, and I think many of us have that experience in different ways, whether it's through friends or through family or through drugs or through, you know, whatever it is, social activities or the gym or different things that we're doing. And I'm not saying that that's bad, right? It's like, of course we want to connect. Of course we want to be with people. Um, but one of the things that has happened over the last few years, specifically when I started writing my book was, I remember when I signed my book deal. And my editor told me specifically, she said, these are going to be the loneliest two years of your life. And I was like, really? Like, you know, and, and she was right. I mean, I had never because I'm not a person who can write with noise. I'm not a person who can write with music. I can't write at a cafe. And so I was just alone. And so it was interesting because when this whole quarantine thing started, you know, jokingly, I had said and I even posted online, I said, Oh, I just did this for the last two years. So, like, I <laughs> right. guess, you're, you know. Yes, you're well conditioned. You're a yeah. sort of modern monastic lifestyle right. within but a city. Know, you know, but you know what's interesting is what I've found, and this has been the deepest teaching for me through like all of the different practices, is if we can't be alone with ourselves, how can we ever expect to know who we really are? You know, if we cannot be alone with ourselves, how can we ever expect to know who we are? And so that has led me down this path to really want to inspire people to get to know themselves. Because what happens is if we're not alone with ourselves, then everything we're learning about ourselves is then what? A reflection off of someone or something else. Yeah. Who I am in relation to or compared to or whatever. And we see how this takes us down a rabbit hole now these days with, you know, social media and comparing ourselves to other people and where we should be. And and I think the deepest power, you know, comes when we've built our foundation on our inner knowing, on our inner self. And and I feel really blessed that I've been able to cultivate a relationship with that and been able to help other people do that over the last several years. Yeah. I um I was talking with Michael Beckwith a few weeks ago, and he said mm -hmm. something that just completely stopped me in my tracks, which is loneliness is a loneliness with yourself. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And uh, that off so often we portray a false image of perfection of who we are to compensate for the not enoughness that we feel. And even when Ooh. we're in very crowded social situations or a party, we can still feel lonely because we are portraying ourselves not as who we authentically are. And that is yeah. a loneliness with yourself. It's when you said it, I was like, whoa. And the other thing I heard the other day, um, I listened to the Making Sense podcast with Sam Harris, brilliant guy. Yeah, and um, he said the most severe form of punishment um, next to um, a death sentence is solitary confinement that we would mm. actually rather be with murderers and, and, and those who've uh, committed all sorts of felons and burglars and whatever, than we would with ourselves. Wow. And that, um, that we are just not trained to be alone with our mind, which is where we experience existence. So, you know, I, you have obviously had to develop tools and techniques for being as comfortable with yourself as you are. I wonder if you could talk about that. 
Well, and I also want to name too, I think like there is a lot of discomfort still for even, you know, I remember when, when all of this started with, with COVID-19 and, and in general with life, like I had right away, like for first two days, different people were reaching out to me like, can you give us advice on how to stay da, 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 during COVID-19? I was like, I don't know. Like, that's literally, <laughs> I was like, you guys, yeah. like, I have no idea. Like, I'm sitting here eating a bag of Oreos, like, like, and, you know, I'm trying to figure this out too. But, but this is, you know, in all seriousness, this is when the practices come up to meet us. And, you know, for me, just to be like very clear with people, you know, I grew up in a home with gunshot holes literally on the outside of my house you know, and alcoholism and addiction and domestic violence. And quite frankly, a lot of things that a lot of young people are facing today. I know, you know, our sister Marianne Williamson has been saying now for the last year that all the research is showing that kids today are growing up with a level of PTSD that's similar to returning war veterans coming back from Iraq. And, but there's nothing like P or post about it when they're experiencing it day after day after day. It's like present traumatic stress disorder, you know? And, and that was the environment that I grew up in. And so my internal world was constantly jacked up, just like constantly on fight or flight, constantly in fear. And I got bullied a lot in school when I was a kid. And, and so for me, when, when you grow up in that environment and anybody who's grown up in, in a situation with trauma, oftentimes all you want to do is get out, right? Like, like, how do I get out of this? And for me, as a kid, my adaptation was to just be really smart. I was like, if I could just be really smart, I can go to college and I can get out. And, you know, I'm grateful to say that I did. I ended up getting a full ride academic scholarship to go to UCLA. I get to UCLA. I'm now living, I go from living in, you know, what some people would call the hood to a ritzy neighborhood in Los Angeles in Westwood. I had extra money for the first time in my life. I was buying expensive jeans, which I shouldn't have been doing with my scholarship money, but I was doing it, you know, and <laughs> yeah. I was was out of the closet and like everything in my life on the external looked exactly like I had always dreamed. I checked every single box that I was expected to check. And then this moment came when I went, oh my God, I did everything and I'm still miserable. I'm still not happy. How do I, how, this, isn't, this isn't what was supposed to happen, right? You know, and I think we all have these experiences where we try to change our job, our hair, our house, our this, our that, to, our th to try to heal something within. And so when I was in college, you know, I asked a mentor of mine, I said, I think I'm depressed. Like, what else? I don't understand what else I'm supposed to do. And then that's for the first time ever in my entire life, I heard the word meditation. He said, you should try meditation. And I literally went, meta what? I said, well, what is that? Like, I did not, you guys have to remember, this is like almost 15 years ago, Oprah had not done a meditation challenge. I didn't know any black people meditating. I literally didn't even know, you know, what it was. And um, in the community that I grew up in, it just wasn't a thing. And so that was what opened, started to open my eyes and open the door to this practice that now, you know, a decade and some change later has, has really changed and transformed my whole life. Yeah, and do you feel... Um, that that's different. I, I saw a video of you, I think going back to your high school in Pittsburgh, is that right? Pittsburgh, yeah, yeah. California. Mm -hmm. And um, and it was very moving. You know, uh, you were, I think, speaking and you were on, I think, part of your book tour. Yeah, um, it was the first stop of the book tour. And uh, I think there's 3,500 students there and um, there seemed to be a tremendous amount of enthusiasm and pride 
Um, did you get a sense from the kids that meditation is more in the zeitgeist? It is more prevalent? Are they, or are they looking at you still like, what? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, things have changed so much. You know, I, I remember even, you know, as a part of my book tour, what we're doing and what we'll continue to do in the fall is we're going to high schools in underprivileged communities and giving the book away for free and doing these big kind of TED Talk style events, teaching the kids how to meditate. And What's happening is so interesting. I asked them right away when I get on the stage, I said, how many of you have heard about meditation? And still, you know, only half of the auditorium raises their hands that they've ever heard of it. Yeah. And then, but the other half has heard of it. But what they think of it is basically like, you know, a Saturday night, Saturday night live skit of what they think of meditation <laughs> yeah, is, sure. you know? Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot to break down there. They're like, oh, my, my mom does that. So things have definitely changed. Um, things have evolved a lot since, you know, I was in high school when quite literally, Jeff, when I started meditating, my grandma and my mom tried to have an intervention because they thought I joined a cult. They lit and I wasn't doing anything. I was just like in, you know, meditating in Venice beach, you know, at, at exhale, like there was nothing major happening, but it, it was such a huge deal for the community. And I think that's a huge reason why I wanted to write this book because there are, we realize when we go outside of the bubbles that we're in, the spiritual echo chamber that we can be in, that there's an entire world of people such that I could go to, we're talking about kids just a second ago, but I was just in Southside Chicago teaching 59 women who were all over 40, between like 40 and 75, who had all lost a child to gun violence. So really deep experience. But in the room of 50 something women, I said, how many of you have heard of meditation? And still only half of them raised their hands. So we're talking grown women in a city like Chicago have never heard of it, have no idea what it is. And the other half of the room, I said same thing to them because they were mostly black women who were older. I said, and those of you who have heard of it, how many of you think it's against your religion? And again, half of them raised their hand. And they said, I don't do that. I don't worship shrines. I don't do, you know, we don't do that. There's only one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the thing is, is if we're not bringing these teachings into people's context and helping them understand the truth about what these practices are, can be, then they'll ne never be able to hear the lessons and never be able to get some of the experiences that have, that have helped us all so much. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Certainly creating a cultural relevance or religious relevance um, to the practice, I think, can be helpful in making it more accessible and relatable. Certainly with Christianity, there's a direct line to prayer. Um, yeah. There's even quite a few instances in the Old Testament um, that refer to meditation, I think Isaac in the book of Genesis. Um, and, uh, and, and then throughout other major religions, obviously Buddhism, which is essentially based on meditation. Um, right. But uh, so tell me a little bit about the book. And, and I will say just kind of to finish a, a little bit on your last comment, there are more like significant mainstream, um, I suppose, role models that are bringing meditation into communities that um, where it was not very prevalent. Um, but I would love for you to talk about your book, Stay Woke, A Meditation Guide for the Rest of Us. Uh, what inspired you to write it? Um, why did you write it? And who the hell is the rest of us too? <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good question. So, so I think I'll start with 
your last question, um, which is who is the rest of us? Um, because that was a really important reason why I wrote this book, um, or I would say the reason why I wrote this book. So right in the beginning of the book on page three, um, I'm just going to read a little section. Um, so it says, for my black brothers and sisters, this is for you. For my LGBTQIA plus brothers and sisters, this is for you. For my women who've had enough, this is for you. For my starving artists and workaholic creatives, this is for you. For my conscious entrepreneurs who want to make an impact, this is for you. For those who have been discriminated against for their otherness, this is for you. For my social justice warriors, this is for you. For my tree-loving planet savers, this is for you. And for all people of color and everyone who is woke enough to understand why I'm saying that in the force in the first place, this is for you. This book is for us, for the people. Beautiful. And you know, for me, it was really important. And what I found, you know, as I have been guiding, being guided so beautifully by some of the most amazing mentors and teachers who many of whom we all love, you know, being taken under the wing of so many teachers when I was really young. And one of the things that's felt interesting to me as I've, you know, matured in my practice is that so many of the teachings don't apply the teachings directly to the very real struggles and contexts that so many of us are facing in our lives. And, you know, we've heard the term spiritual bypassing a bunch, you know, and, uh, and I obviously we're starting to move past that, but still I find when we look at how, okay, so like, yes, love and light is good. Like, yes, we need to send compassion. Like, yes, we need to do all those things and they're all great and they're all wonderful. And Like, how does this actually apply to social justice and environmental change and activism and the big disparities that are happening in our world, not just on a social level, but even internally, like the oppression that we've internalized on our own self or the traumas that we've, that we've all faced depend, regardless of how we've grown up. And I think for me, mostly, you know, I think one thing that almost all traditions can agree upon is that meditation is is really about awareness and what i find right now more than anything is if we're really having real awareness not spiritually bypassed awareness what awareness is calling us to do right now is to take action hmm. is to get our asses up off our meditation cushions and to take action you know and not just sending the energetic love and light yes we have to keep doing that and there's more. And so my book, the intention for this book is really to inspire us to use the practices, to teach people, first of all, how to do the practice. And second, to use the practices as a means of digging deep within so that we can see what the best actions are to take from our heart for our lives, for our families, for the community, for the planet, and for one another. And that that's really the mission is it's about action. Yeah, that's a beautiful message and mission. And I completely agree with you and um i'd say like my meditation is it's vipassana in nature um in terms of the practice itself but the goal is self-transcendence i suppose um and ridding oneself certainly of the desires and cravings and the endless seeking out of external agents for to address your discontents and to provide pleasure and relief from pain and relief from suffering, et cetera. But also 
to rid ourselves of the story of separation, that we are separate from nature, that we're separate from others, separate from, um, separate from God, working like, in competition with each other. And I think if you are able to achieve a state of being where you've transcended the egoic mind, you've transcended the self, then those positive emotions that you referred to at the beginning, love, compassion, empathy, forgiveness, come flooding in. Yeah. And then as you embody those values that are transdenominational, that ha have appeared perennially as universal truths in every religion. All uh, across the board, yeah. As you begin to embody those things, then it is, you know, in Buddhism, it is the Eightfold Path. It is then how do I, for lack of a better word, leverage that into right work and right action here on earth to, yeah. and for me that, that is the form that an ethical life is a direct output of a spiritual life. Um, and the idea of you going into places like Chicago and bringing a practice to women who've lost their children, I mean, that is the epitome of the ethical life. I mean, almost all religious trans, uh, traditions culminate in some form of selfless service. Um, yeah. So it's, I think it's just, um, I think it's beautiful. Um, what Thank you. Jeff. Not only the words and, and that you're speaking, but the actions that you're taking, I think that that addresses, you know, that point. Um, that I'd like to underscore that I agree with 100% that it is about getting up off of our ass. Um, th that meditation doesn't necessarily suggest a contemplative life. It also right. can suggest an active life. Yes, yes. And, and I believe that so wholeheartedly. And, I, you know, I think that one of the things that is such a common misconception is that you know, meditation is, is supposed to just be about relaxing, but I, I really don't find it that way. And I, I think that's such a waste of, uh, an idea of what meditation is about and what it can be like for me, meditation is not about relaxing. It's about becoming more alive, mm. you know, becoming more fully alive, more really connected to our passions, more really connected to our emotions, like the things that we love, the people we love, the things that light us up in the world and the things that we we can do in the world. And it gives us the agency or access to the agency that we have within ourselves to take right action yes. and and the courage and, and all the different things that can come up from it. And so um, I just think this practice has the ability, as you know, to help us do a lot more. And, and one of the things that I wanted to mention that off of what you said just a second ago, Jeff, was that I think one pitfall um, personally that I've witnessed and that I tried to underscore in this book is that I agree and while I agree 100% that at the essence core nature, like there is this oneness and that we are not separate, right? And that we are all coming together and like we have the same desires for happiness and joy and love and, and all these different things in life. But I think one of the things that has done our community a disservice, and you quite honestly, it would have to be because until recently, most of the teachings have come just really from white men and some women, you know, is we haven't really looked at 
how there is this moment where yes, we are all one and there is differentiation. And some of that differentiation is unfair and unjust. And we have to actually apply all of these concepts that, that we're learning and praising within the oneness and see how we can apply it to these other spaces that are starving. It's like, how do we pour some water into these places that are in drought? And and so that is one of the things that I really like to hopefully make sure happens when people are reading this book. Like there's a chapter that was a really fun chapter to write um, called The Privilege Test. And it's not like a comparison test, but it's this really cool thing where you go through and and there's like 30 questions and you do this little exercise where you know, it's like if both of your parents went to college, if you had 30 books in your house growing up, if you da 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 and mark, 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 and it gives you kind of a score, and then it compares your score to just other people hmm. who may be different than you. And it's not a thing to say, oh, I'm better than or worse than, because even though I'm a queer black man who grew up in this, like I still have many privileges compared to some other people. And um, so we all have it, but the, then it goes, okay, how do I look at this? How do I sit with it in my practice? And then what do I do? Yeah. You know, and that's kind of the process that I like to take people through all throughout different sections of the book in different areas of their life and for the world. Yeah. Yes. Um, and specifically, as that idea pertains to the actual word woke, I'm curious um, for you what that word means. And uh, you know, it has some origins to me in the 60s civil rights movement, but yeah, but it gets used relatively loosely and, and perhaps incorrectly in some context. So I, I'm wondering how and why you landed on that word and what that means to you. Yeah. So interestingly, uh, so same thing. So what a lot of people don't know is that the word woke does originally come from, you know, 60s civil rights movement. But a lot of people actually don't know that. I think most people think that it's like some catchy hashtag or phrase that came around in the last like six or seven years or yeah, so. I'm and old. I'm old. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but, but no, it's great. I'm so happy that you know that because it, it does come from the 60s civil rights era movement that really what the message of that word was when people were telling people stay woke or be woke was to make sure you're watching the things and you're aware and awake to the things that are actually happening in the world, not the things that um, they're trying to cloak over our eyes with. And so when there's like drugs being implanted into communities or where there's different things happening with police brutality and, you know, many things that are still happening today, the community was saying, hey, you know, stay woke, like don't go to sleep because if you do, then the system is going to, you know, get us basically. Mm, and, yeah. Stay and, alert. And yeah. Stay alert, you know, yeah. stay really aware. Don't drink the Kool-Aid, you know, and, and really pay attention. And so when I was writing this book and these words stay woke came to me, um, around using this as the title, it aligned so much because for me, it is about staying awake to what's happening in the outside world, but also staying awake to what's happening within yeah. and how that internalized systems that are within us are doing the same things that we're trying to fight against. And so what I find is that when we're not caring for ourselves, when we're not uh, building our internal landscape, then we end up internalizing the same kind of oppression and same kind of things that we're trying to fight against in the outside world. And so you know, there's obviously the the play on words with like awakened, you know, in the spiritual world. So there's a lot of crossover. But I think mostly uh, for me, 
it, the, somebody asked me when I was first writing and playing with the titles at Sounds True, they asked me, why don't we just call it Woke? And I said, no, because it, it's not a destination. Like mm. it, is, it is a practice. It is a constant commitment, which is why for me, Woke isn't just like a word. It's, it is a call to action exactly. for us yes. to constantly stay in this alignment, in this path of, of being awake versus, oh, I'm awakened now. Like, yeah. I'm done, you know? So. Yeah, I think it dovetails with your message of, uh, of living an active life. And I, I don't know if you, if you saw this, but um, our dear President Trump, has a campaign in a handful of urban cities in swing states called woke i know and he has woke hats, hats. and it's just such a like i can't yeah, yeah it like, is the crystallization <laughs> of hypocrisy um and uh and i won't spend too much time on his particular confection of the american grotesque <laughs> but um but I, yeah, when I, I saw that pop up on my feed, uh, my stomach turned a little bit. Um, so I'm counting on you just to, to keep the word. <laughs> well, you know what's <laughs> just, interesting, yeah. Jeff, yeah. is like, is when I, so I had the idea for Stay Woke, where it actually came to me like several, God, it was almost two and a half years ago now. And so, and the word, I didn't make up the word, obviously it's been a word in the community. And one of a mentor of mine, Zena, actually, she brought it to my attention as a potential idea for a title. And when it happened, I was like, yes, that's it. And then the word kind of like took on this new meaning. And I think NPR put out this article called like, why woke is dead. And like, this was like maybe six months before the book deadline. And I wrote to sounds true. And I said, I, this can't be the title. Like we have to, we have to stop. Like, I can't do this. Woke is overused. It's misappropriated. It's it's going to be done by the time this comes out. And they said, okay, beat it. If you can beat the title, we'll change it. And so I went into this like title war in my head. And then what ended up happening was I was like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to lean into woke and see like, why is this title sticking so hard with me? And what I found was that you know, even though it's a word that's been misused and misappropriated, like it's a word that we actually can't abandon. It can't be just some like word that's like, oh, fleek or bay or whatever, these little words that come and get trendy because we actually need woke. Like for people who have had to face an uphill battle to fight for their freedom, to the freedom that really is our birthright, whether you're trans or a woman or disabled or any anything, you we need this word because we actually don't have something to replace it with. When people say, what's woke mean? It takes sentences and sentences and sentences to define it. Yeah. So we don't have something to replace that with. So my intention is to really reclaim that word and make sure we're using it uh, for the purposes that it's really was meant for and beyond. Yeah, it's interesting the point that you make that there, there's not a clear like Webster's definition for woke. I mean, I'm sure there is. It's probably kind of a general alertness to injustice, but but as you say, it, it has a subjective meaning yeah. for people, um, and it and it does beg conversation, um, yeah, which I really like. Um, so I'm curious, are you leaning into your practice now? And, um, and I ask you that just in the context of spending a lot of time alone as 
many of us are as we're called into inaction. Uh, if we're not yeah. a superhero on the front lines as a healthcare professional or a grocery clerk or, um, you know, or a, a biologist or a government worker, most of us are just spending time alone. Yeah. Um, and while we're alone, we're also getting flooded with information and misinformation and data and facts hurtled at us at, at light speed um, that, you know, can manipulate us in some ways into a state of fear and anxiety. Um, and I think a lot of people are feeling that now, waves of fear, waves of anxiety. Um, so I'm wondering if you're feeling that at all and, yeah. um, and what you might be able to offer others um, if they're feeling it. Yeah, thank you. And and I will say I'm absolutely feeling it. Um, I have had, you know, I think one thing that's interesting is a lot of us are brought to this practice because we were dealing with anxiety or, or different things like that, you know? So a lot of people look at teachers like, oh, he must always just be so peaceful and relaxed. I'm like, you guys realize why I teach this shit, right? right because I have a problem. <laughs> like, that's why. Yeah. And so, but um for me, the waves, I get these waves of like loneliness and sadness and like wanting to be wanted or wanting to connect and want to like they come usually twice a day for me, once in the morning and once around 830 p.m. or so I get this like kind of washes through. And I think what I can offer to people and what the practice has taught me more than anything, or I guess one of the, the greatest things is that there's nothing wrong with that, that there's nothing wrong with the fact that I feel anxious or sad or depressed or isolated. Like it is okay. And I, and of course, in a time like this, you know, so many people are telling us and t asking us to make sure we're thinking positive, make sure you're always this way. Like we are in a very real moment in time that is very scary for a lot of people. And if you're sensitive energetically, you'll feel it even more. And so, what I think is, yes, we do want to try to stay positive and we do want to stay in hope over fear. Absolutely, of course. And like, we don't have to relegate our hard to manage emotions to the basement. Because if we do that, what happens, we all know, is it just seeps out in some area of our life where it doesn't belong. Again, in our health, in our families, in our relationships. You know, and so for me, I've, and I can't say that it's the easiest thing to do, but even still, when I feel sad or if I feel the waves come, I try to just go, okay, it's all right, Justin. Like, you feel sad. It's okay. Let's sit with it. This is what I feel. I don't have to push it away. I don't have to try to numb it out, you know, and try to just feel it. And if it gets overwhelming, you know, to the point that it's like, okay, time to, like, I need to go do something else. I, it's overcoming me now. Then, then that's when I turn to some of the reframing tools like gratitude practices or gratitude walk or going outside into nature or calling a friend or just watching a funny video of Cardi B talking about <laughs> internet, which, you know, like, like those things are useful now. And so, you know, I think the biggest thing is that Oftentimes people assume that meditation or these practices are always supposed to make you feel good. And I always tell people that is not true. What these practices will do is make you feel, period. It's not about good often. But what we learn is when we can paint, 
with the full palette and range of all of our emotional palette, like without having to demonize certain emotions over others, then we have a state of ease knowing that we are not those waves. Yes. That we are, we are the essence that is experiencing those waves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that your vocabulary use is either very intentional or very well trained because, you know, you're careful about saying when I feel sad or when I feel fearful instead of I am sad or I am fearful because we are not those things. And I think that that's the one really important distinction is that, yes, you have felt sad and maybe you feel sad and you will feel sad again. Yeah. But those emotions have come and then they've gone like invited or uninvited guests at your party and, uh, and you will see them come and you will see them go. And to be able to establish that awareness or that ability to witness those emotions and feelings and not be them is is absolutely um, key. And, And what you say is if you don't do that, if you just actually, resort to distraction and I do everybody does that too you know you just talk I don't want to do that I don't want to watch Netflix or whatever but what you're doing is you're pushing that emotion in and um, you know Michael Singer writes about this uh, about the idea of samskara of like these things that then will continue to come up over and over again over and over yeah over and over what doesn't heal repeats i i you know i always live by that like if you what doesn't heal it's going to repeat and and right now we're having a heightened sense of of what is you know in dis-ease in our lives and the the interesting thing you know for a lot of people and uh, everybody can't look at it this way but you know i was talking to some people the other night on a zoom session and you know people are like well i just can't wait things f- to for them to get back to the way they were back to where and i think most of us hopefully are under the, the understanding that like things are not going to be back the way they were but this is also i think a lot of people are using that as a band-aid because like actually i tell people look at your life really quick and what what it was like was that what you really wanted? Like, do you really want that the way everything was? And if if so, great. But like, take a second and, and look. Like, what about your life before this was out of alignment? And like, right now, you know, there's this sacred pause that's giving us a moment to hopefully be able to see what we want life to be like on the other side, not regress backwards. So we have an opportunity now, some people, if we're privileged enough to actually have this opportunity right now, it is to say, okay, instead of trying to spend all this time like putting band-aids over the past so that it can be some remnants of my old life when this is over, Instead, look at your old life and say, okay, there's that. These are the things that I was unhappy with that I don't like, the relationships, that this, that. And now what do I want on the other side of this? And that's where I've been trying to keep my mind and and look at the opportunities. Like one thing for me, Jeff, and this is super random, but like I um, have looked at this opportunity to do things that I normally don't have a chance to do. And for me, like I, for the last four or five years, have really wanted to learn how to play guitar much better than I play it now. And, but I never have time because I'm always on the road and I don't travel with the guitar and you have to be consistent. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, like I can, I can play guitar right now. 
you know, and no, it's not about how I'm going to take my entrepreneurial business to the next level in my life. Like I can do all that overachieving stuff later and even do some of that and stay productive now. But I've been asking people, what's something that you have that you always say, oh, I really wish I could do that, but only if I had time, if only I had time, if only, well, now you have time. Yeah. So what are we going to do with it? You know, and that's what I've been asking people. Uh, you posted a quote, which is, no solution can possibly exist when you're lost in the energy of the problem. Yep. That's a Michael Singer quote, actually. Oh, perfect. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and you offer some real, um, I think, very actionable um, solutions and suggestions for how to spend our energy and time right now. I wonder if you could talk about it for a minute. Yeah, yeah. So I love giving practical tips because, you know, a lot of this can be like, oh, this is in our heads. But but mostly going back to that quote, like no solution can possibly exist when you're lost in the energy of the problem. And you had mentioned, Jeff, like about, you know, the news and all this kind of stuff. For me, I have barely been looking at the news or anything because I think no matter what the numbers are, no matter what they say, no matter what new information comes out, no matter how many people are dying, all I can do is wash my hands and stay inside. <laughs> like literally, I don't care what I read, nothing is gonna change about that, you know? And so I'm just still doing my best to to do that and just take the news and just like, I, I just don't need to hear it. And obviously stuff that needs to come to me comes. But But mostly if we're lost in the energy of the problem and we're not in the energy of the solution, then our brains get totally hijacked and we can't even see the possibilities that might be in front of us, right in front of our eyes. And so simple things that I've been telling people to do that have been so profound are, first of all, a gratitude walk. Now, this is a really simple practice that every, I was shocked at how big it got on social media. All these people started tagging me and saying, I'm on my gratitude walk, I'm on my gratitude walk. And basically you just walk outside, you know, obviously keeping your social distance, just wherever you are in your neighborhood with no aim on exactly where you're going, turn your phone on airplane mode so nothing's coming in so you know you're protected in that way and set an alarm for 20 minutes. And every step you take while you're walking, say something you have to be grateful for. And for the first, you know, couple minutes, you're going to say this, say that, and then you're going to feel like you're out of things. Mm -hmm. And what every single person consistently has said is after about four or five minutes, they felt like they hit this threshold. And then it was like, oh my gosh, I have so much to, and they couldn't stop by the end of it. And it's this beautiful moment to realize the things that actually really matter to us. And, you know, gratitude without going too much into the science, you know, we know is scientifically proven to help us feel happier. And I find that just a simple practice like that can get our minds out of the energy of the problem and into the energy of the solution. Mm, beautiful. I love that. Um, to follow up on the point of gratitude for a moment because I struggle with gratitude. I'll be honest. Why? With you. Well, you know, I've got some solid, I check the box on a lot of good qualities. Okay. <laughs> but I will say, um, that it's just not a, um, a virtue that comes naturally to me. Um, mm. and you know, some, 
part of me feels like, well, you know, I've worked really hard for this. <laughs> like, I deserve this. And, and I'm not necessarily pointing out the best part of me either. Um, and, and I tried to kind of understand what it was for me. Um, because, you know, I started kind of like rolling my eyes at the endless gratitude memes. And I was like, eh, okay, right. well, you know, that seems a little bit trite. Um, and then it kind of took on this other meaning for me that goes to your point around the active life and not just the contemplative life. Because for me, gratitude started to mean what is the work and action I can do to acknowledge the miracle of this great gift that I've received. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful, Jeff. I love the way you've, you just phrased that. That was lucky. I just kind of went for it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I might have to re-listen to that because it felt good. Um, but that gratitude for me has become more tied to my active life, to my behavior, to my right work and action. It's not just enough for me to sort of acknowledge the things that I'm grateful or thankful for. Um, anyways, I'm not sure if that resonates with anyone that is listening, but for me, it kind of like put some scaffolding around what that thing meant. And yeah. now I'm like way more connected to it and it feels really good. Um, the other thing that you talked about, um, that I thought was great that also addresses like really being able to, um, use this focus time, for example, like you were doing to get more proficient at guitar was power hours. <laughs> yes, I was hoping you would ask me about that. <laughs> so the power hours are, this is one of my favorite things, and I talk about it in the book. Um, and it's something that I learned from my mentor, Lauren Roche. And then obviously I gave it a catchy name because it's what I like to try to do sometimes. <laughs> but You're good at that. But, um, but basically, you're going to notice throughout your day that you have a window of time and it's different for everybody where your mood is a little bit more elevated just naturally. So like if you're going through your normal day, you wake up, you have your coffee, you whatever, there's going to be a moment in time that lasts for about two or three hours when you just feel more awake, more alert, more energized. For me, that window is usually between like 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. or 11 and 2. And then usually I get a second wave that like comes kind of later in the evening around 8 p.m. or so like that. And what you want to do is just for a couple of days, try to track this window. And when I tell people to track it, this is really important because most people think they know when their time window is, but it's often different than you think. I remember I used to think that mine was at two in the afternoon, but what was interesting is that's actually when it ended. Hmm. Um, but it was just when I would often drink more coffee because I got tired. And so then I thought that that was my second window. So anyways... Just track it for a couple days. And then in that window, you call that window your power hours. So for me, it's 10 to 1 and like 8 to you know 11 p.m. And what I advise people to do is to consider that time really sacred because this is the time when your energy is lifted, when your mood is lifted, and when you have the energy to actually do something that, again, is in the energy of the solution. And what so many of us do in those power hour windows is we spend that time talking on the phone or just cleaning or, or doing something because we feel like we have that energy. And then we save the thing that really matters for our life or for our happiness or for our passion or for our art until later, until we have time. And then we end up trying to do those things when we're tired or when we're, you know, kind of hitting our energies waning. 
And so what I've been recommending for people to do is find their power hours. And then if you can block out the whole two or three hours to do something productive or something that brings you joy, great. But if not, even just blocking out 30 minutes or an hour in that power hour window is significant. Because if you did, you know, one hour every single day in your power hour window, then, you know, by the end of the month, you've done 30 hours on something that is meaningful to you when you have your most vital life force energy moving through you. So that's been a fun way for me. And um, the other thing that I do and tell people to do during that window is just pick one thing that you're going to get done during that window. Don't put this exhaustive to-do list in front of you because that makes it feel like work. Like you just say, okay, this is my power hour window. And this is the one high quality action that I'm going to take during this window. And so, you know, if you end up goofing off the entire rest of your day or wasting or getting lost in distraction, that you've at least done one thing that day that was taking you in the direction of your vision and your goals and your dreams for the future. Mm, yeah, that's such good advice. Um, and I suppose wisdom is simply about taking your own advice. Um, but, um, <laughs> but essentialism is, uh, is key. And it's so hard because oftentimes for me, it's writing. Um, and unfortunately I write on the same device that's like pinging me from 45 different directions. Oh, that's you know? hard. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, you know, I, I agree that being able to spend kind of focused essential time is, um, is key. And, and also sometimes that creative spark or wisdom will come inside the periods when you can actually achieve what I think of as long wave thoughts. Yeah. So much of our life is spent kind of in this kind of EKG of life, which is kind yeah. of these jagged short wave um, answers and emails and texts and slacks and, you know, everything else. Um, it's actually why I love podcasts so much is because it is a medium where you can kind of stretch out um, and I think people really appreciate that. Yeah. So the last, uh, the last, um, I guess tip you might call it, although it feels more like more substantial than a tip, um, uh, is really based around helping others. And I think that that's a great place to kind of round out our conversation today. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how, to do that, you know, because sometimes I think we feel kind of a little bit paralyzed right now in our ability to help. Yeah. So there's actually, there's so many ways, but there's one way in particular that has been mind blowing for me, um, that and it's so easy, so easy. And it's to get or give help one or either way. And, um, one of my sisters, um, Shelly Tegelski, she actually started this form. It was just in Florida for a community in Florida um, where you literally go to this website and you push like, I need help or I can give help. And people are asking for all kinds of things. Like it's not even just people saying, I need my bills paid, but it's like a woman who's a single mom with a newborn child in Torrance who needs diapers, who has money 
but just needs somebody to bring them to her mm. because she doesn't have anybody to bring them. Or, you know, an older woman who normally somebody is checking in, her neighbors or somebody is checking in on her regularly, but she just wants somebody to call her every day at one o'clock. And there's all these different things. And so Shelly started this group or this form in just Florida. And now I think as of yesterday, they've matched 7,432 people all across the country. And it also spread um, to Sean King, who's a huge activist who kind of started his own version. But there's a, a website. So if, if you know anybody who needs help, or you can even offer help in the form of money, in the form of helping somebody pay their bills, in the form of a phone call, you know, um, the website is pandemicoflove.com, pandemicoflove.com. And that's the original um, form with Shelly. And they're just doing amazing work, sometimes a thousand people being matched in 48 hours, you know, that are getting support in the, and they're matching them up in micro communities. So like if you live in whatever, Nevada, they will try to match you with somebody that you can help nearby you. And it's been a really cool opportunity to support and help. Oh, man, I love that so much. Um, and it, resonates with a lot of the thinking that I have been doing around what is the new world story that's going to spin out of this wicked mess. Um, and I think it, it will hopefully be more local, that our lives will become more decentralized and local, and that we can lean into our communities where we can really engage kind of civically um, more. And that idea of being able to help someone that's in proximity to you is a beautiful idea and also it is a very effective idea as I, I was doing some research on an episode on charity a while back and um, your biochemistry actually reacts more strongly around philanthropy or altruism to a specific person that you can know and actually see the results and the impacts of your action versus mm -hmm. like just giving, you know, to the Red Cross or, or right. whatever. Um, but that is a, that is a beautiful um, endeavor. Yeah, it's so cool. And I can only imagine the people that are gonna be served by the time this is over. And, and just also, which you, I'm sure you saw in the research that you were doing, when it comes again to going back to that original Michael Singer quote of, of being in the energy of the solution, you know, and not being in the energy of the problem. It's like now you're becoming the solution. Mm. And there's no better way to be in the energy of the solution and to get your mind in a positive space when we see either how we can help somebody and be a part of the solution, or even if you're in a state of need, to experience that the solutions are out there and people wanna help. Like both of those things affect our biochemistry and our bodies and our moods and all these things in so many juicy ways. And, um, you know, I think it has long-term benefits outside of just the one moment that, that it happens. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing, if it's okay, um, that I can mention about, um, giving, bringing mindfulness to kids in schools. Is it okay if I mention please, something about please that very do. quickly? Yes. So, you know, I was on my book tour and one of the things that we did, like I mentioned, was we wanted to completely flip the traditional book tour model on its head where you kind of typically go to bookstores and affluent neighborhoods. And 
we said, okay, what if we go to some of the most impacted cities in the United States, like Southside Chicago and Atlanta and Oakland and, you know, New York City and Baltimore and Flint, Michigan, and we go to high schools and we go to colleges and we surprise the kids and we give them books for free and we teach them to meditate in a way that's like fun and exciting and has music and really meets them again in the context that they're in. And so with my publisher, with Sounds True and their foundation, we actually over the last couple months have raised over $140,000 to go to 14 schools in the United States. Um, and we were on that tour and then it got paused and it's being hopefully, um, well, it will be rescheduled, but we're hoping that it will be in the fall if all the dust settles as planned. But we're trying to get to as many schools as possible. Originally, mm -hmm. our goal was our goal was 10 and we raised enough to go to 14 and we want to be able to go to more. And so we created this little website where people can go and donate as little as $8. It costs $8 to, to get it to one child or, you know, as, as large as they want, or there's even sponsorship and partnerships available. There's the opportunity to even bring us to your city, which is like 15 K to go to another city, which some partners have done. And so, you know, that's at staywokegiveback.org. And as much as I want people to get my book and read the book, like what I want more than anything, and I know what our community believes is that we want everybody, you know, especially those who don't have access to be able to have access to this knowledge that has helped us all so much and changed our lives. And so, it just is such an amazing opportunity. I'm so grateful that so many people, we've had thousands of people in the community donate even small amounts and it makes a big difference. So staywokegiveback.org so we can uh, get these teachings out to the kids who need us most. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you would like to learn more about Justin and his work, please check out justinmichaelwilliams.com. And if you have any questions or comments about today's show, email me directly at jeffk at onecommune.com. I try to reply to every email and love hearing from you. That's it from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>